Welcome to the Science of Sex. Today's conversation is with Dr. David Lay. David is a researcher and a licensed psychotherapist, as well as a sex therapist. I hope you take away something of tremendous value from our conversation. I really had a good time. A quick note here. Throughout the interview, we use the word conservative quite a few times. We don't mean conservative politically. Uh, we mean conservative socially. So there are plenty of people out there who might want lower taxes or support other um, conservative political ideas. I have worked in politics for 13 years. I have talked to pretty much everybody under the sun about their politics, and I understand that it's very varied. So that's not to be construed as us talking about people who vote a certain way. It's more about people who want to control the sex lives of others and oftentimes even themselves. And they approach their sexuality through a moral lens that tells them that it needs to be tightly controlled. So there might be a lot of people out there who vote Republican or conservative in whichever country you're in. Uh, however, they don't subscribe to that idea. Our conversation was exactly an hour and 45 minutes, so there's plenty of stuff to dig through and hopefully plenty of tidbits for you to learn from. I wanted to extend my deepest gratitude and thank you to everybody who subscribes to The Science of Sex. Whether you're a free subscriber or paid subscriber, it truly means the world to me. And to the paid subscribers, you have helped me build this over the past year and a half. And I could not have done this without you. So thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. And now, without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. David Lay. I'll just start, I guess, by telling like kind of my story, um, two parts of it. Uh, just yesterday, I uh, interviewed Jonathan Kent, a journalist for the BBC at Reuters, who released the book A World Beyond Monogamy. Excellent book. Um, and it covers so many different voices from all across the planet and basically every continent about non-monogamy. And um, it was a really great interview. We scheduled an hour and just ended up going for like two and a half hours. Um, my first non -mon ethically non-monogamous um, encounter was way back in like 2004. <laughs> so that was back before we had all these terms and things. I know that's not the subject of today, but, you know, um, we had all the there was, you know, not a a whole lot of information out there. It was really hard mm -hmm. to find. So over the years, I started doing non-monogamous relationships and I noticed that there was just a paucity of discussions about things about sex. And so it was, it was really tough because me and my partners had to feel everything out and there wasn't mm -hmm. any, you know, answers or even sometimes there weren't words to describe the emotions that we were experiencing. Um, currently I'm in a non-monogamous relationship. Uh, we're polyamorous. We're a VU relationship. Um, so my girlfriend has a husband. Um, you know, we actually all live together. So it's, you know, completely above board and definitely ethical. Um, and so, yeah, it's just been a wonderful, wonderful ride going. You know, I've tried it all from swinging to I've done. I used mm -hmm. to really get into the hot wife thing before that was even a, a you know, a, a term really that was popularized. Um, so I think that it's really important that we have discussions about these kinds of things, because I think mm -hmm. a lot of people feel, I remember how alone I felt um, and how that relates to this, um, these issues about the war on sex and porn addiction, you know, is there is a, an abundance, as you know, 
of forces out there trying to thwart this expansion of human sexuality and the variety of ways that people love each other and show each other affection. And, um, you know, for me, I one of my first papers uh, that I wrote on medium.com was about, um, I did like the whole history of like erotic stuff from like caveman days to like, you know, um, to modern pornography. And I closed with, you know, well, now that we have digital, digital, you know, uh, pornography providers, so to speak, like Pornhub, people are getting addicted. And then I encountered your research and then I encountered <laughs> Dr. Prousey's research and I went, hmm, hmm. <clears throat> I dug in and it's to date one of two articles where I've had to go back and just put a big, huge, bold disclaimer on the top that says I was wrong. Um, oh, wow. I leave the article as it is so you can mm -hmm. read my perspective at that <clears throat> time and not try to cover up, you know, mm -hmm. my wrongness there. And that was a humbling moment, you know. Um nobody likes to say, oh, wow, I was wrong in front of millions of people. <laughs> it's just not a comfortable <laughs> thing. Um, but, you know, it's it's out there and that, that article's up there. And, and I think that it's important that people get the message out because personally, I'm very progressive, like socially progressive, you know, not like politics aside, as you could expect from somebody in non-monogamous relationships. And even I was seduced into that belief because it's so prominent and it is so absolutely i mean the church organizations i've since published on on just oh oh man i just kind of went into a deep dive and found out that you know how much the mormon church really propped up this idea that porn is addictive and hopefully we can mm -hmm. talk about sex addiction too and um and I felt like I was screaming into the void, publishing article after article after article, and people get mad at you. They get very mad at you when you when you bring it up because you know, I mean, it, it, it's a comfortable thing for people to believe. And so I'm so glad to have you here on the Science of Sex, doing this uh, you know podcast and interview here. Um, let's see, where should we start? Is there anything that like that you think in that story that jumps out at you? um that that you think maybe we should we should kick off the ball rolling or i've got some topics if not you know i uh, i mean a couple of things um <clears throat> one um i i would say you know you, you're absolutely not the only one um i um uh i started my career working with sex offenders um individuals that you know committed sexual offenses both adolescents and and adults and, you know, a few years ago, I looked back at um, some presentations that I did about doing that work. Um, and I think I um, uh, probably presented them that in like 2006, maybe 2007, something like that. And when I looked back, I was like, oh, my God, wait, I I was using addiction kind of language in there. Um, and uh not not explicitly but i was i was definitely using some of those concepts and terms because like as you said it's it, it it's just so prominent i think that it's intuitively easy to equate desire for sex with desire for drugs and alcohol um it 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 intuitively kind of feels sort of similar. I think all of us as sexual beings can think back to times when we felt tempted to 
do things that we knew we shouldn't do because we were turned on. And, um, you know, the ev psych research is, is very clear that when we're turned on, our uh, disgust senses or sense goes down um, and we're more likely to do things that we would find repellent when we're when we're not turned on. And that kind of feels like being under the influence of drugs or alcohol, you know, as a mind altering kind of uh, behavior or influence. Um, the problem is that the 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 industry of sex addiction is based on you know argument by uh, argument by analogy exactly that that sex is like drugs and alcohol um and i i call it valley girl science um you're probably not as old as me and remember you know the the valley girls speak like you, you know oh like 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 let's go down to the like mall you I, know like, like i am from I am from Los Angeles, so okay, I was born in the 1980s. So yes, I have seen it up close okay. and personal. <laughs> and 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 so <clears throat> trying to claim that sex addiction is is real and valid um, on the basis of analogy, uh, it it inadequately considers the fact that. Argument by analogy is the weakest form of philosophical argument. Um, it's it's the least precise. It's the most easily manipulated, and it fails to consider um, all of the ways that sex is not like drugs and alcohol. Um, you know, we uh, we can say you know a banana is like an apple, right? They they both the the flesh are are both white. They both taste sweet. Um, so yeah, a banana is like an apple, but, but wait a minute, you know, you, you eat the skin of an apple. You don't eat the skin of a banana unless you're a freak. Um, <laughs> you know, a banana grows on a plant an apple grows on a tree. Um, the, so there are as many ways that bananas are different from apples as they are like, um, is it, is it really meaningful? Not really. And the same, the same is true for sex. Um, that, you know, distinct from alcohol, um, <clears throat> nobody in the history of the world has ever died from blue balls. If you take away alcohol from a person who is a long-term alcoholic, they can literally have seizures and die because their, their body and the brain have become dependent upon the alcohol. The brain stops producing certain neurochemicals because it uses the alcohol instead. But if if you prevent somebody that's been having sex, lots of sex, multiple orgasms a day, maybe from having an orgasm when they want one, nothing bad happens. They might get a little pissy, right? Because maybe they're a little selfish, but their body doesn't stop working. And it was, it was, it was that realization, honestly, that led me to start questioning and then ultimately challenging the idea of sex addiction. Um, and, 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 and we'll talk about that and kind of, you know, where that sort of came from. But the other, the other thing that, that I thought was interesting in, in, in your narrative was um, that also relates is that um, 
my first book is called Insatiable Wives, and it's about cuckolding and hot wifing. Um, and you know, it was it was published back in two thousand nine before anybody was really talking about cuckolding or hot wifing um, in the mainstream the way they are now. And um, and as I wrote that book, um, after I wrote the book. I had uh, psychologists um, and clinicians around the world that had that read my book and reached out and said, oh, my God, I'm so glad you wrote this because cuckolding or hot wifing is my thing. But I can't talk about it to other psychologists because everybody is so judgmental. And I don't know if you know a, a, a writer psychologist named Deb Annapol. She wrote a lot of the early polyamory stuff back in the 80s and 90s. And um, she was a psychologist who came out as polyamorous. She had to walk away from her career in psychology because the field of psychology was not interested in talking about or hearing about non-monogamy. Because there was so much intrinsic moral judgment kind of embedded um, in mental health in general, in psychology especially. And it was those experiences, writing writing my, my first book about uh, cuckolding and hot wifing, and then writing my second book, The Myth of Sex Addiction, that led me to realize and acknowledge just how poorly trained on sexuality most clinicians are. Um, when I was in grad school, um, the only training I got in sexuality was in, in diagnosing paraphilias. And uh, it was really like and, Kraft Ebbing stuff, <laughs> like 18, yeah. late 1800s, you know? Yeah. And yeah. And, and very pathology focused, right? Um, we didn't talk about sexual diversity. We didn't talk about the huge range of sexual behaviors. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't even talk about the fact that, you know, um, sexual frequency is significantly correlated with lifespan and life satisfaction. I mean, frankly, you know, fucking and fucking happily are one of the things that is really critically important for most humans on the planet. And the fact that we're not training people to talk about it and think about it and to understand the diversity of it, um, you know, uh, leads to most clinicians, including me before I started doing this work, judging people's sexuality based on the Kinsey model. You know, if you're having sex more than the therapist, then they're, then you're an nymphomaniac or a sex addict, right? If you have um, sexual desires or interests that the therapist doesn't, then there's something wrong with you, not them. And it is, it's a travesty. It's, it's frankly, um, a, a, it, it is, the only thing I think that is worse than that is the is the gross neglect that we engage in as a society by failing to provide adequate sexual education. Um, and I think these things go together because both of them are fed by this moral assumption that if we pretend these things don't exist, if we don't talk about them, then they won't happen. Um, and, 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 and the reality is right. That it is the, 
it's the children who grow up poorly sex educated that struggle most with STI prevention, with pregnancy, with sexual assault. Um, it's the it's it's the areas where sex isn't talked about that are unfortunately the most unhealthy sexual areas. And that was kind of where I sort of embarked on on the career that I have now of you know challenging a lot of assumptions and biases around sex in the scientific and clinical fields. Um, before before I published Myth of Sex Addiction, sex addiction was really <clears throat> it wasn't taken seriously in the academic or 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 research fields because there wasn't a evidence or data there. I was really surprised when I found out how seriously um, sex addiction therapists took it and how much people just assumed it was true. And it was because the the research field wasn't challenging it publicly. Um, and so the, again, that was, you know, that was where I stepped in. And, and like you said, I mean, the, the hate the attacks, the 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 I mean the death threats, the doxing threats, the oh, and it's, online and it's, harassment. It's it's, it's, it's crazy. They'll like even the most progressive you know, like you, you kind of expect mm-hmm. that to come from the evangelical movement or something, right? Who's just I mean, it's baked into their philosophy of being mm-hmm. very, very much against um open and, and free sexuality. Mm-hmm. But when you know you're your like progressive friends are attacking you over it like it's like whoa wow that's that's just shows how far this the idea has gone um yeah three things that jump out at me about what you were talking about is uh <clears throat> just to lay the cards on the table here i am a alcoholic um i am if i have a half of a beer i will continue to drink and i'm that guy who if i'm sitting there if I've had a half a beer and I'm watching somebody have, like nurse their beer at lunch, I'm just sitting there like sweating, like, come on, hurry <laughs> up, you know, like I'll, I'll finish it for you, you know, uh, thus I don't drink alcohol um, and I don't take street drugs. Um, and so for me, when I hear that idea, you know, um, that, uh, you know, that it's addictive, like a drug, it is kind of insulting and i don't mean to 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 just to say invalidate that people are having negative experiences in life and have maybe some you know moral incongruence between what they want from their sex lives and what's actually happening and that can be very uncomfortable but the idea that it's the same as 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 what i experienced before i got sober and i don't do an aa or anything i just i don't want to live this way anymore um so i have my skepticisms about those programs as well uh but Mm -hmm. the you know the the, i think the overarching point is it's definitely not the same and you can tell that somebody has never experienced that when they say you know it's yeah not not at all close um another thing that jumps out is you know that what that first ethically non-monogamous experience i mentioned back in 2004 i mean i'd had you know some threesomes at parties and stuff but this was like the first within a relationship concerted effort to invite a friend in and it was you know, a, a guy friend of mine. So it was my girlfriend and a guy friend of mine. So, you know, that was also very much way ahead of the curve. So, mm-hmm. you know, we I don't think we started seeing like cuckold and hot wife stuff start to take off until maybe the mid 2000s or uh, 2010s, excuse me. Um, so yeah, that was like, I, man, I'd already been doing it for 10 years at that point, you know, at least dabbling here and there, not like it was a consistent thing. 
And yeah, it's just super interesting how how far behind sometimes the research and the science can be. Um, in terms of sex addiction, I wanted to ask just because I wanted to get it clear. I've already had you know, Dr. Prousey on the program. She said definitively porn addiction does not exist. Um, and yet still, you know, even some of my smartest friends insist that she's wrong and they're right or their buddies on Reddit, mm-hmm. you know, suck balls 6969 that they've never met. <laughs> right. And so when it comes to to porn addiction, I'm sure you you're going to say it just the same definitively does not exist. And sex addiction, too. Correct. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll be a little nuanced. OK, <clears throat> Um, first, I, I always try to make it clear that the more strongly you believe something is not evidence that it's true. Um, and, and I think that's where, I think that's where, where, where people get confused because something feels really, really true. And they think that that feeling is evidence for the validity of the belief. Um, and they and then they argue as though it's a rational kind of empirically based argument, not recognizing that it's actually emotional because they're they're basing their argument on the feeling that it's true not the evidence that it's true. And, um, you know, we, we see this a lot today. We see it in climate change. We see it around back, you know, around vaccinations and around abortion. And, and, and I think that that feeling is a, is a perfectly reasonable feeling. I think it is as um, our feelings are as important for people as evidence and reasonable reasoned thinking but we have to keep them both in the lane. Um, and one of the things I've learned over the years with this is that arguments with people about whether sex is addictive or not <clears throat> are really arguments about their fear and mistrust of their sexual self that when they are arguing that sex is addictive or that sex can be addictive or that they're a sex addict, they're saying, I am afraid of and mistrust my sexuality. And, but, 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 but they're not talking about that feeling. They're, they're, they're hiding that feeling behind this pseudo rational argument about around sex being a, a equivalent of a disease it took me a long time to kind of realize that and when i realized that it allowed me to empathize more with the people who are arguing with me about it because i now i now realize that you know they're they're afraid and and they've been told to be afraid the they you know the 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 
religious communities, the states that are passing these laws restricting sexual freedoms, um, they are afraid that the world is crashing down around them. And they're afraid that if they allow um, their sexual morals or communities or rules to change, that their way of life will will end. Um, and they can't keep out the internet. They can't keep out the sex. Um, I, I did a talk several years ago in in uh, Salt Lake City, and it was it was to a large group of of Mormons, and um, I was speaking specifically about pornography, and um, and I did a lot of work at the beginning. For I mean, first I I, I, I out of concern of what could happen, I did the talk completely coated in um, butter underneath my clothes, not as a kinky thing, but because I had been told that that was the best way to get tar and feathers off, um, just in case, right? Um, but I did a lot of talk at the beginning, a lot of work at the beginning, um, empathizing with these people's fear of sex and their fear of pornography. Of course, they were afraid of it. Of course, they believed a lot of um, things that were inaccurate. They didn't have any framework to question those ideas or beliefs. And they'd been told that, you know, pornography would warp their brain. They'd been told that pornography would lead them to cheat on their wives. They'd been told that pornography would make them homosexual, would make them, you know, choose, uh, you know, sex over working and eating and taking care of the kids and every other damn thing. Of course, they're terrified of it. The same, I think, is true also for women that fear their husband watching pornography because they've been told that if he's watching pornography then he doesn't want you if he if he's watching pornography then it means you as a wife can't satisfy him it means that your relationship is doomed it means that it means all these things so we before we can have conversations with people around these things, I've I've learned that we first have to empathize. We first have to connect as people. We have to identify um, sexual values and what we what we believe in, what we value. Um, and so I'm I'm talking a lot more these days as I talk about this stuff about, you know, the principles of sexual health and how is it that we decide whether whether sex is healthy or not. And, it you know, again, when most of us are ignorant um, around sex in general, we decide whether sex is healthy or not based upon these intrinsic, intuitive, unvoiced, typically morally driven kind of ideas um, around monogamy, around heteronormativity, around um, simple fear of lust. And 
that you know that also that you know the the you know Kellogg's cornflakes was invented you know as a as a food to prevent masturbation because the idea in the late 1800s was that if you were too focused on the on physical sensations like 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 eating that and and flavor that it would lead you to not attend to your spiritual self that you would you would focus on the physical world instead of the heavenly world sex there's nothing more physical than than sex and kellogg believed that you know if we allowed lust to to promulgate unchecked that people would be lost to sexual depravity and um, I mean, even the signer, uh, Benjamin Rush was a signer of the Declaration of, the Ind uh, of Independence. He was a physician who believed that um, masturbation was a disease and to be treated with leeches. He's the guy who invented the idea that masturbation would make you go blind. Um, those ideas have been around for a really long time, and they are based in this religious, moral mistrust of sex. So we we have these ideas that lustfulness can't be healthy. Sex has to be constantly contained, particularly male sexuality. It's not by accident that um, sex addiction is overwhelmingly 90-95% diagnosed in, in men because it is inherently a mistrust of male sexuality and inherently a, a belief that if it is not contained, um, male sexuality will run rampant and, and end in rape, depravity, sexual assault, fucking sheep. So people have this idea that sexual health ha is, has to be controlled and resisted and suppressed. Even today online, even in non-religious men, there's a lot of men that believe that men who masturbate are less, less manly than men who don't that choosing not to masturbate and suppressing yourself from masturbating makes you more, more manly and shows you have better self-control. So again, there's this idea that se healthy sex has to be, has to be controlled and denied. Yeah. It, it's, I mean, it's like, it's like anorexia to the point of emaciation, yeah. right? Like that's kind of what it really reminds me of. Um, and what you touch on is something interesting, just a little bit before you know we continue, because I definitely want to get to the religious component for sure. Um, but one thing, you know, because the science of sex is growing at an incredible rate, I'm fortunate to report. Thank you all for good for you for um, you know subscribing. Um, I think that some people might not be familiar with moral incongruence theory, so I'll try to sum it up, and feel free to correct me. Um, what the research has found is there are a lot of people saying, I am addicted to either porn or sex. And when those people are studied, uh, a lot of times the research finds that they actually watch less porn or have less sex than, say, the average person. And that tells us that a lot of times they have a moral belief of 
sex, that sex needs to be this amount, otherwise it's unhealthy. And if it's from an evangelical standpoint, then that's basically mm -hmm. zero. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. when your goal is zero, everything is too much, as like as I like mm -hmm. to say. Um, and that's moral incongruence. But one of the whenever I mention this to people, one of the things that I get back is, well, what about all the people that I know who are not religious? What explains that? And when I first encountered your work, it was crazy timing because the Atlanta shooter had just unfortunately and tragically mm -hmm. shot up the massage parlors in 2019. And at that same time, a non-religious friend of mine called me to let me know that his girlfriend told him that he had a pornography addiction and he wanted to apologize to me for it, which is very odd. And, uh, you know, it's fine. I, I don't mind. <laughs> it's not my business, man. Um, but it struck me that that it doesn't have to be religious. Um, it could, you know, there it, it seems to me that moral incongruence can also be an external force of any kind. Yeah. And that's why we see, you know, kind of some extreme feminists and the religious right getting together mm -hmm. on this because, you know, the extreme feminists want zero porn and they want men right. marriages twice zero porn. And that's a discussion that that people are welcome to have with one another. What is what they're comfortable with. Right. Because we don't want a person who is made deeply insecure by pornography, married to somebody who just wants to watch it all the time and expect that there's going to be no problems. Um, that's just, I mean, silly. It's best mm -hmm. for them to compromise and find something that works. But yeah, it, so there are a lot of other forces besides religious ones. Is that an accurate appraisal of moral incongruence? Absolutely. And um, the uh, <clears throat> is, it, there's been some good work on this just recently, actually. And this um, uh, it's actually one of the things that I've trying to be trying to trying to shift the conversation around that a lot of people assume that moral incongruence is based solely on religious values and um you're right it's not it's much broader than that because and and the reason i places i first encountered this was people uh, within the sex addiction field who would challenge me when i was saying this is a religious issue and and say, but I'm an atheist, and I'm a, and I believe, and I'm a sex addict. And there's some other factors that work here um, that that we can talk about, some personality factors. But um, but I think it's important that we clarify two things. One is that even if you are not a, an actively religious person, you grew up in a society that sneaks religious values into your thinking, your beliefs, your sexual attitudes without you noticing. Um, the and 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 you know a, a really clear example of that is the uh, you know the the marriage equality movement and. And how many people were against gay marriage, even if they weren't religious? Um, attitudes towards masturbation is another great example that really historically it's been predominantly religious folks that, you know, condemned masturbation. But there's a whole lot of people um, that... Uh, fear masturbation, but are not necessarily religious because 
those religious attitudes about masturbation infiltrated more broadly. So just because you're not religious doesn't mean your attitudes around sexuality don't mirror conservative religious attitudes. Secondly, and and the you know the the identification of feminism is I think a good example that there are conservative moral values that are not religious. And um, if you are deeply feminist, for instance, there are values that are embedded in that. And, you know, I, 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 I treated this guy, um, 18, 19 years old, who had grown up deeply uh, feminist, was not religious at all, um, came to me and he was just really terrified of his sexuality. He um, he liked to watch, uh, you know, rough sex porn, specifically um, porn that involved kind of, quote, face fucking with, you know, guys having rough oral sex with the woman until, you know, she was gagging and, and tears ran down her face. And, and he kind of fetishized if she had mascara and the mascara was running down her face. That was the thing that really turned him on. But he thought he was an awful person because he thought that that meant that he was a rapist. Now, he'd never engaged in sexual assault. He didn't have fantasies about engaging in sexual assault. He actually valued consent. But he thought that that turning him on made him a bad man, made it made him a rapist. And so we talked about, no, it just means that you are a guy who has to work a little harder to find a sex partner that is into that. And that you don't engage in that without consent. And, you know, you'd be surprised how many women there are out there are out there who are into that, too. You just got to find one of them. But he is a good example of moral incongruence in somebody that wasn't religious. Again, with those conservative with, with those values, those re, I'll say rigid values rather than conservative. And and we see the same in the in the manosphere, you know, now with, um, you know, men that have the men and women that have these hyper rigid kind of beliefs or ideas around masculinity. And then the more rigid those beliefs are, the more the more difficult sometimes they are to resist and the more the the the, the problem and, and I'm not going to I'm not going to disagree with you Joe on abstinence work abstinence from alcohol working for you it does for some people but in sex what we find is that if you set abstinence as a goal any kind of sexual abstinence as a goal, abstinence from masturbation, abstinence from uh, infidelity, abstinence from a certain sex fantasy. You're setting yourself up to fail because it becomes um, very easy to slip. And then, and then, and then that, 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 that slip can feel little like, like people, people who, believe that abstinence from porn is important. What's frightening is that their definition of porn is different from yours and mine. Their definition of porn includes like Victoria's Secrets catalog. So they can slip and watch porn that you and I wouldn't consider porn. And so it creates a greater likelihood of failure first. 
And then secondly, it becomes a taboo. And there's fascinating research from uh, from Israel. Yanov Efrati did this groundbreaking research. Um, and the title of it, I think, is "Oh God, I, I can't stop thinking about it." And um, and he showed that more orthodox religious people worked harder to not think about masturbation, and the more they tried not to think about masturbation, the more they thought about it, and the more shame and guilt that they felt about thinking about it. It's like don't don't picture the uh, a bear. Don't think of the color purple, right? And then, like the moment yeah, you ask somebody right. to do that, yeah. first thing they do is think of a bear or a color purple. Yeah, and you, you know, your brain. What I like to say is, your brain doesn't know the valence of energy, um, positive or negative. Your brain just knows energy, and so the harder you work not to think about something, the more your brain is learning. Hey, this thing is really important. So it starts giving it more energy, giving it more attention. It's this paradoxical spiral. Now, I also think it is <clears throat> frighteningly sinister um, in a way that the sex addiction industry, you know, mirrors the strategies of religions for years that by condemning something and and making you feel like you're a failure if you think about it or engage in it, it brings you back to the fold. You know, in, in religion, you know, I was raised Catholic. I mean, you know, everything's a sin. And then what do you do when you sin? Well, you got to go to church and confess. Otherwise you're, otherwise you're fucked. So, so it, it's this, it's this spiral. It's the, it's this self-fulfilling feedback loop. The same is true in sex addiction treatment that, you know, once you're a sex addict, you're always a sex addict. And, and, and um, if, if you slip at all and, and, and slip can be all these things, then you got to come back to treatment. You got it, you know, and, you, and, and it's this, but by creating such vague open definitions of what counts as a failure or a relapse, so to speak. It, it increases chances of failure and it creates this self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and, 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 and it's important to note that particularly in men, sex and masturbation is used heavily to manage negative emotions including stress anxiety and depression and it works really really well for that because so this, again this, as we that's started a good thing is that, is that exactly a it's a good thing oh, and yeah, and as we yeah, for sure yeah okay. as we start yeah i mean it it when we're turned on some of those parts of our brain you know turn off and it gives us a moment's respite and escape from those feelings um and so if you've got a guy who is feeling anxious and ashamed about his sexual thoughts and they keep getting worse oftentimes engaging in masturbation and sexuality is one of the only ways to escape from those feelings and then the shame and guilt come back even harder afterwards um the uh, it, 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 one of the other languages that is used 
um, again, with an analogy kind of argument with sex is that it's like OCD is that it, and now they're trying, now they're using the, the com- language compulsion much more that, and the thing about the thing about it though, is that compulsion is borrowed from OCD language and compulsions are these irresistible in impulses that we have to engage in behavior in order to make intrusive thoughts go away and compulsions are not so are not reinforcing behaviors so um like eating a sweet or drinking um uh, alcohol is not compulsion because it those behaviors are in and of themselves reinforcing the thing about calling these sexual these sexual behaviors compulsions is that people with OCD struggle all day long every day with these intrusive thoughts and these challenging behaviors that they have to engage in to make those intrusive thoughts go away and to control for a moment their fear that the world is going to end and they're going to die or, or all of these awful things many people with sex addiction, so to speak, or compulsive sexual behavior now, they may engage in that behavior once a month, once a year. There are men who, you know, view themselves as sexually compulsive because they cheated on their wife once three years ago. They're not struggling with these things the way that people with OCD are. And just like you think it's insulting to to call sex an addiction like alcohol and drugs, I agree. Um, it's insulting to the people that are struggling on the street with those things. I've never seen a homeless person who lost their job, their life, their marriage, their family because of jerking off. I've seen lots and lots of homeless people who lost everything because of drugs. The same is true calling it a compulsion. That first, it, it it is sending this idea that these sexual desires or thoughts are irresistible. They are resistible. And secondly, it is insulting to people with OCD because it's saying that, you know, wanting to watch porn once a month is the same as your having your constant need to wash your hands till your hands are chapped and bleeding because of fear of fear of germs. We have to start approaching these things with a better understanding of sex and not just trying to make this real by making it like other things. There are some genuine issues around sex that deserve attention here, but they get lost in this easy argument. They get lost in this easy kind of claim that it's an addiction or a disease. And we don't attend to, for instance, you know, uh, sexual narcissism and people that are engaging in highly selfish, self-fulfilling, egotistical, unempathic, exploitive sexual behaviors, but they get to call it a sex addiction without ever addressing the fact that maybe they're just a selfish asshole. Yeah. Yeah. None of this. I just want to clarify. And I think I said this, um, recently on, on the uh, episode I had with Dr. Prousey is that, 
none of this should be construed to mean that there aren't people who are absolute jerks when it comes to their sexuality out there. Mm-hmm. There are totally people who, let's say, a guy gets with a woman and uh, she has some problems with the amount of porn he's watching and that she feels uncomfortable, you know, the fact that he's watching porn. And instead of trying to resolve that issue with her, he tells her, I'm not in control of your feelings. You need to handle that by yourself. I don't care. Right. Like that's kind of a, a very, very rude response and it's dismissive. And um, and that's definitely not the way that you respond to somebody you care about. So, yes, that that certainly happens in terms mm-hmm. of um, in terms of alcoholism. I have a very interesting perspective. I, I disagree with the vast majority of what you will read in Alcoholics Anonymous textbook. Um, But one thing that I think is very spot on is they describe the phenomenon of craving and they accurately describe that, that once there's a little bit imbibed, something takes over. And it, for me, if it's alcohol, it is a quasi painful experience and it can be just so much as a half of a beer. I think that much is true. And my perspective is interesting because it's only alcohol that I experienced this with. I sense there's some genetics at work. Um, I've written about it um, extensively elsewhere. and. I know this to be true because I occasionally get insomnia and my doctor prescribed temazepam, which, you know, being a benzodiazepine will be often described by psychiatrists as alcohol in a pill. And Mm -hmm. my 30 day supply lasted me an entire year. That's not, you know, that's not addiction, right? So I have like an AB comparison of, okay, it only happens with this one chemical substance and does not happen with the other substances. Um, I was prescribed tizanidine with for a recent back injury. I you know, basically crushed three of my my spinal vertebrae, which has been rough. And that's a you know a, a muscle relaxer. Same thing, no problems. It's only with alcohol, so it's very interesting. I just wanted to clarify that because um, abstinence is, in my view and experience, it is something that needs to be done when there is a chemical process at work. Um, but not when if like even if it were true that somebody had a behavioral problem with pornography, that wouldn't qualify. Um, so, you know what I mean? And there are uh, there's uh, Lance Dotus um, also. Is, mm-hmm. uh, he he talks about alcohol. His books are great it's about how. Sober trick, um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Great book about how, um, you know, it's sometimes better to just do, you know, management, moderation management. And that is, you know, learning how to drink in a moderate manner rather than just trying to quit because like you just said trying to quit makes people and for many people makes them think about it all the time then they go to meetings and then they're talking about it all the time and next thing you know there's a relapse so for a lot of people that's a solution and my view is if you're battling drugs or alcohol do whatever works for you and your family um you know i'm not here to say some things are good and some things are bad do what works and get yourself healthy that's my main concern um let's talk about the religious component Recently, mm-hmm. Dr. Lay Miller, Justin Lay Miller, his sex and psychology podcast is really good. And he talked about, um, he had a guest on, they were talking about pornography addiction. And um, man, I forget the forget the guy's name. And he was talking about how he went to an evangelical college in 2004 or so before porn yeah, Josh, really- Josh, Josh Grubbs, who's a, a yes. good friend of thank mine you. and a thank you so much. fellow researcher. We, we published some stuff together. Um, oh, awesome. Awesome. Um, he, one thing that really jumped out at me was he was talking about how he felt like 40, 50% of the people in the college were talking about how they had a porn addiction 
And that mm-hmm. was at a time when nobody was talking about it in the general public at all. Social media hadn't yet taken over in 2004. And so you have this, like, again, an A-B contrast of, like, so you have this group of people who have the moral incongruence disposition and a substantial majority of them or a substantial amount of them believe in this thing that they're actually experiencing. Meanwhile, you have the rest of the population who hadn't yet heard of the idea and they're just oblivious to it and they don't, they don't really care. That's one thing that kind of, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of odd and, and funny in in the sense that, you know, our beliefs have an tremendous amount of power over us and we tend to view information as this inert thing especially in the information age oh well i can just at any time choose not to believe that or choose to believe that and we don't understand often how much it you know we imbibe it and and sort of augment it through you know for lack of a better term osmosis and then we come to believe the thing and then our lives we interpret our lives as that thing that we have come to believe as far as religion's role, unequivocally, even though we're saying that religion is not the only reason somebody could experience the feelings of problem with pornography or sex or sex addiction, religion is definitely by far started at all, right? Is that that's yeah? Where I mean, we are. yeah, and there again, there there's some nuance in here that, that I think is important to to explain, and that and that you know. Dr. Josh Grubbs can explain better than I can. Um, but <clears throat> people who are religious use less porn. They are less likely to watch porn. However, they are more likely than non-religious people to identify as addicted to porn. Um, and it, it's funny how how things morph in, in the 80s and 90s. We talked a lot about sex addiction. Um, uh, you know, with 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 Tiger Woods and um, uh, you know, Bill Clinton was called a sex addict by no less than than uh, Gerald Ford, um, and we we're talking a lot more about sex and particularly infidelity, male infidelity as as evidence of of of, of sex addiction, and then um, it, it, male homosexuality, male homosexual behavior was also identified as as key indicator of sex addiction. And you had all these straight religious men who said um, that their desire for same sex was caused by sex addiction. I'm I couldn't possibly be gay. This must be unwanted same sex behaviors, um, unwanted same sex desires where they started arguing that desire for same sex was occurring in heterosexual men because of sex addiction. Now, there was another thing that was going on during this period, and and it was the AIDS crisis. And um, during uh, AIDS crisis is early 1980s is when the concept of sex addiction was really introduced. So it's not by accident that, um, that the concept of sex addiction pathologizes whatever male sexual behavior society most dislikes or disfavors at the time. The advent of internet and access to porn 
led to this um, shift where now most sex addicts are men and the behavior identified by about 80% of alleged sex addicts is porn use and masturbation to porn use. Um, as, as Nikki Prowsey, I'm sure, indicated, you know, that porn use is always a, a euphemism for masturbation, that when we talk about porn, we're talking about masturbation. So that, that shift is reflecting society's shift away from towards judging different behaviors. There's a remarkable article by a guy named a researcher named Jeremy Thomas who follows um, the shift in language in religious uh, publications around pornography. And he shows the point at which in the 80s, these religious publications stopped talking about what pornography as a moral problem and started talking about it as an addiction problem. And he argues that they did so for two reasons. One, so they could outsource regulation or control of these behaviors from the pastor to the sex addiction therapist. They could, and so that they could now absolve the religious man for watching porn. He's, he's not immoral. He's just sick. Um, a, a good friend of mine in San Diego um, talks about um, a, a highly religious man came to him. He'd gotten caught um, uh, going to adult video stores and having sex with strange men. And um, his religious leaders told him, well, go get a, go get a sex addiction eval. And if you're a sex addict, then you can stay in the church and just get treatment. But if you're gay, you can't stay in the church anymore. And so it's this, you know, I mean, the the think about the dilemma in that in that guy's mind and, and heart. Being being religious, and and I always I always have to make this point. Being religious and participating in a religious tradition or community is a remarkably healthy thing. Um, in many ways, people who are part of a religious community are at lower risk of developing substance use disorders or mental health problems. They um, are at lower risk of criminal behavior. Um, uh, th there are lots and lots of very healthy, positive things that come along with participating in church. But being religious is itself a risk factor for developing a sexual disorder. Women who are religious are much more likely to uh, experience sexual disorders such as anorgasm or vaginismus. Men who are religious are much more likely to identify as sex addicts um, or experience shame-related um, erectile dysfunction. Because of the fear of sex that is embedded in there because of the idea that there's one kind of sex that is good and right and that you're allowed to have or think about and everything else makes you a bad person. There's a funny thing that happens um, 
in both swingers and um, people who watch porn. Both of them become less religious. People who watch porn become less religious over time. They're more likely to report crises of faith. They're more likely to report questioning belief in the existence of God. And I call it the lightning didn't strike phenomenon, because in both groups, they're now seeing other people have sex that they were told would make them a bad person and that lightning would strike you down. And they see these people on camera or in real life having sex that they were told made them a bad person. And nothing bad seems to happen to these people. And, and so people start questioning what they were taught about sex in the religious communities. And then they start questioning other things that they were taught. So it makes sense that religious communities are terrified of porn and terrified of changing sexual values because they see that it is a crack in the dam that can lead to them losing followers and influence. I mean, the number of religious people in the United States keeps dropping. I'd, I'd imagine porn is, is responsible for a lot of that. I've even gotten messages. Much of my writing is very, very um, adamant that we need to do more to defend women's rights, especially the right to health care, but mm -hmm. even the right to kind of just be left alone and not you know, treated like an object. Um, a lot of people would probably say that my writing is feminist, um, even though I don't ever try to write with a label. I just want to talk about the things that matter to me. And um, one person reached out to me and said that I need to be doing more as a feminist because porn exists. And in porn, uh, men ejaculate on women's faces and they don't like to have men ejaculate on their face. Therefore, I need to speak out against it. And porn, therefore, porn has a normalizing effect on sexual behaviors. Uh, just to clarify, from all the research I've seen when it comes to porn causing you know, violence from the violent porn you were talking about earlier, uh, that's just not bared out in the research. And every time I have checked whether... When you get a country like uh, Czech, Czechoslovakia and Czech Republic who were under the USSR and then got liberty, Japan, porn used to be illegal. And every single time you take one of those countries and they legalize pornography, sexual assault and rape rates go down. So it doesn't mm -hmm. go up. It's quite the opposite. Um, but I do believe that sec that porn has a normalizing effect on sexual behaviors. And the way that I think that it works is you have people like me who were doing some kinky stuff before it was popular. And then you see other people on video or who were desiring kinky stuff, yeah, you know, hot wiping or cuckolding. And then you see people on video doing it and it's not the end of the world. And then you right. go find other people who want to do that and you That's go, right. hey, let's do it together. And everybody goes, yeah, yeah, cool. I'll get the hotel room. You bring the snacks and we can do it. And and I think that's a good thing. I think that is a very good thing um, that we're and, and I think that's why the church is honestly deathly afraid yeah. because they're it reminds me of where the kind of not to get into the political weeds where the Republican Party is right now. They have a decision to kind of let go of some of the crazier 
things and try to get towards the middle and moderate to what people actually want, because I'm sure the Republican Party could be wonderful if they would just let go of the crazy evangelical stuff and the crazy anti-democracy stuff. And but they won't do it. They won't do it. And and that is where the church is. Right. If they could just, you know, why not go with the teachings of Jesus who said nothing about sex? And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, he did say if the I you know, pluck thee if thine eye offends me. And that's still, it's just absurd, but, you know, um, but it's definitely not the old Testament, which is like, you know, set things on fire and brimstone and, and, and just really, really, really anti-sex positions and, and, uh, uh, you know, prescriptions. And so, yeah, I just, I wish that, because I do think that for a lot of people, maybe some sort of spirituality or religion has a role to play in their lives. And, it's just in, in just like the Republican Party, it constantly disappoints me. It's like, come on, please. Like, you know what yeah. I mean? Please come to the sensible conclusion because you know as well as everybody else that this these technologies, it's not even anybody's doing these technologies are the things that are going to hinder your longevity as an institution. Um, one thing I wanted to ask is about the directionality question. Um, what I mean by that, Recently, there was a video interview of somebody who was awesome, Professor Scott Galloway. Love his writing, love his talks. Um, he was on MSNBC, and um, he said that men have, uh, let's see, what's the, the actual quote? That men are no longer, a substantial portion of men are no longer economically viable enough for women to date. His quote was actually not that bad, but that if you just take that excerpt, it's 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 pretty bad. I agreed with like 90% of what he said, but that's pretty bad. And I think it that's another theme that I consistently talk about is how often women are painted as these money hungry gold diggers and men just want these young, beautiful women who are very fertile. I mean, it's it's a very, you know, Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro pushed this message a lot. And it's just not how people work when they date. We're much more complex than that, than this. And it is a bad interpretation of, of evolutionary biology. As far as I've read, um, you know, there are a lot of different factors that people make at, in their decision. My question on the directionality is what Professor Galloway is saying is that a lot of men become radicalized and they find themselves in, for example, a very violent anti-porn movement because they don't have the economic opportunities. And I think that explains some of the issue that's going on. But it also goes the other direction. I think that men find themselves in these movements and then they, you know, they go deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole until they become insufferable people. And then nobody wants to be around them because they're constantly talking about how the world is terrible and how, you know, and and dropping racist jokes or saying these obscene things. And so then it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. What do you make about that directionality question? Because to me right now, arguably one of the biggest threats, and it might even be existential, is the vast misinformation problem that is leading people to these movements of self-destruction and other people's destruction. And that is prominent in the sexual world. There's, as as, as uh, you know, Dr. Prousey has shown time and time again with her tweets and her research that people are becoming radicalized from the anti-porn movements, which, you know, I mean, they ironically tell people who relapse, they, they you know, blast them with a bunch of pornography and say, how dare you relapse? You've let the entire community, and they bully them. And, 
suicide rates, depression rates, all of that go through the roof, which then brings makes sexuality more complicated, and it just becomes this huge snowball effect, and it's really, really, really damaging to people. Um, do you think that's kind of an accurate appraisal as far as directionality? Do you think we need to really worry about these movements that are pushing people in these directions that are unhealthy? Because I don't, I think that that well. Professor Galloway is right for a lot of people, that there's a lot of people who will feel hopeless. And then that kind of message that, you know what I mean, that message of violence or, or anger or rhetoric that women are to blame or that pornography is to blame. I think it resonates with those people because of that. But I don't think if you just solved all of the economic problems, 100 percent of it would go away. Right. Um, a lot of complicated stuff in there. I, I, I I'm. I'm I want, I want to take one quick pause, though, and, and go back to something you mentioned a moment ago, because I, I have a gift for you. Um, there's a, a paper published um, in September 22 called Pornography's Ubiquitous External Ejaculation Predictors of Perceptions. And they actually researched and, and explored wha, um, whether watching facial ejaculations in porn connected to um, negative affect and uh, specifically kind of, um, you know, misogyny, misogynistic feelings, and found no relationship whatsoever, found that the viewers um, who liked watching facial ejaculation didn't want the girl humiliated they wanted her to enjoy it they wanted her to be having fun as much fun as the guy's coming um and so you you can use this article um to push back against those people that say you know facial ejaculations are inherently um uh, misogynistic and anti-feminist in fact, there's research that men who watch porn are more likely, there's multiple research studies, are more likely to be egalitarian in values, to support female values, to support female sexual pleasure. And in fact, guys who watch porn are more likely to know the clitoris exists and be able to find it than guys who don't. Right. And that, that, so, that's that's huge right there. And it's just like it's just like um like gangbang uh, fantasies. Um, somebody published with us over at Sexography on Medium. Um, I'm pretty sure I was the editor of the article and um, they were basically talking about their friend's perspective about gangbangs. And it, you know, without having it in front of me, the, the gist of what I was able to to get from it was that, like, you know, they wanted the woman to be enjoying themselves and i think if you talk to people who are into multi-partner relationships or sex sessions i should say yeah the gist of it is they kind of say yeah i want her to be the star and just having all of the fun and so it actually runs counter to a lot of this narrative that we hear in the more fringe extremes of different movements saying that you know oh it must inherently be violent or domineering and things like that when it's yeah. quite it's quite interestingly the opposite rather than trying to put someone down they want to put them on a pedestal Right. Uh, just to correct you, though, it's not the gist, it's the jism. But this connects to the issue of causality. And um, we can get so wedded to our narratives um, that we we develop what I call psychotic confirmation bias. Um, the where we cherry pick and we only see what confirms our deeply held beliefs. Um, 
uh, I don't know if you know the writer Naomi, Naomi Wolf. Um, uh, she wrote the the uh, the book. I think the what was it? The Beauty Myth um, was was her uh, kind of breakthrough book. And um, um, oh, it was the one on capitalism. Oh, I forget. What yeah, it. yeah. Oh, um, it's on the tip of my tongue. On the tip of my tongue. Right. Well, I and and the interesting thing is, I mean, she was like she was an advisor to Clinton, right? And um, and now she has gone off the rails, and is like this Fox News commentator. I mean, it's it's just wild. It's just a wild, wild, wild roller coaster ride of who expected that. Well, I'll tell you, I did because in a book that she wrote. Oh, I think in 2014, maybe um, a couple of years before the before she went off the rails, she endorsed the idea of porn addiction. And she um, in 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 a book about female sexuality, she she endorsed the idea of erectile dysfunction from porn consumption. And and it and it blew me away because I had thought she was a pretty clear thinker before that. And when I saw that, I went, whoa, right? The same thing, interestingly, happened with Russell Brand, you know, the the, the comic. And, you know, I mean, I think he's a funny guy. And then he started talking about porn addiction. And he's and 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 you saw him go off the rails. And he and he's and and both he and Naomi off the rails with anti-vaccine stuff and conservative value stuff and Fox News kind of stuff and wow what what's going on here and the narrative fits the predisposition in the people and the sexual violence you know men who watch sexually violent pornography are at no greater risk of engaging in sexual violence unless that man is already a man who has high levels of misogyny psychopathy antisocial beliefs low empathy so that violence kind of sticks it sticks to the parts of him that are already there kind of sticky and that's what we're seeing in um these these groups that do, as as Dr. Prowsey says, radicalize men because the men that are drawn to these groups are men who are already kind of isolated, oftentimes poor social skills, anxious. They have some feelings of self-hatred and self-loathing. They're afraid of women and they feel insecure with women. They feel a little threatened by women. And they're being told by everybody that the world is out to get them. And the more they're told that, the more they start to see it. And then the more they start to voice it and it, and it spreads and, you know, people with conspiracy theories are likely to have a lot of conspiracy theories, not just one. Same is true here that, you know, concerns or questions about, am I masturbating too much? Draw them in because lots of people have that question. I know there was a period 
you know, when I was a teenager where I tried to stop masturbating, I think I made it a day and a half, right? But I was sure that that was an important thing. Um, but a lot of guys go to these forums with that question, but not every guy sticks because not every guy has the already predisposing personality elements that are going to make that fit. And then the guys that stay, you do start to see them pick up all these other beliefs that all go together with narcissism and feelings of victimhood. Um, so the causality is bi-directional. Um, it is interactive, but it, It, it is important that we always remember that these things affect different people differently. And, and that is that that is the biggest argument that I have with, with people that, you know, argue around porn addiction or sex addiction is that, you know, sex and sexual desires and behaviors are the most complicated, overdetermined, multiply influenced behavior in humans it's not simple and you can't explain sexual behavior with simple answers if you know if if there's ever a law named after me lay's law lay in spanish actually means law so it would be law law um but if there's a lay's law it would be complicated behaviors require complicated solutions that we can't fix complicated situations for people with simplistic thinking. Um, so we have to look at, you know, porn affects different people differently. Porn affects different people differently at different times. You know, um, men who get divorced are more likely to watch porn than married men because they're lonely, because they're, sad and depressed because they're divorced because they're not with their person that they used to have sex with right? and it's it's easy to imagine that those people would then say or if they encountered that material wait i'm not depressed because i'm divorced i'm pressed because depressed because of the pornography that i keep watching and then they make exactly. that connection yeah yeah and that and that in fact is 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 an argument that was made in sex addiction field for years that um that that porn was causing depression and stress and anxiety because they they would see men that were using lots of porn and experiencing those feelings until finally longitudinal research looked at it and showed oh wait no those negative feelings come first um similarly uh you know there were arguments for many many years that um an orgasm a day on average over a period of about three months was evidence of sex addiction and recent research has shown that that would pathologize between about 22 to 40 percent of men and around 15 to 20 percent of women but the sex addiction folks that were saying that, they weren't seeing the many women, for instance, who masturbate to orgasm at night to help them sleep because those women were having any problems. 
They were only seeing the people that were experiencing problems and they were assuming that it was the sex that caused the problems. But instead, just like all this discussion of religion, we have to look at the greater context. We have to look and we have to ask the question, why is this person struggling with sex and that person isn't? Why is this person having way more sex than this sex addict, but this swinger, for instance, doesn't feel like he's addicted to sex. I treated this, this, this guy who um, he'd been, he'd been married three times and both of his first two wives um, and the, their pastors and the couples therapists that they went and saw all were just full on convinced this guy was a sex addict because the guy was uh, really interested in being a swinger. He really wanted his wife, his, his wives to swing and the wives tried it and didn't like it, but he stuck with it. Now, I think the guy was a little, you know, obsessive about this desire. And I will also, you know, recognize that um, how was it he was ending up with married to people that didn't share his sexual values because he wasn't. He wasn't having conversations about his sexual values or early in the relationship to identify a match, right? But we don't teach people to have those conversations. In fact, we shun it. We tell people they shouldn't fact, have those conversations. It. That's right. Bad. That's right. Bad news. That's right. You, you should wait until marriage and then it'll work. And if you love each other enough, it'll all work, right? Um, well, this guy was married a third time and his third wife cured his sex addiction, fixed it completely. Why? How? Because she was a swinger too. So this there was no longer an incongruence. There was no longer a conflict. Um, so we always have to look at what is causing the conflict and where that conflict is coming from and not assume simple answers. I call um, sex a shiny object, a sex or porn, a sexy, shiny object. Um, that distracts us from dealing with the real issues. Um, in Canada, there's really interesting research. Um, uh, Kankoli Thegi, I'm probably saying his name wrong. Um, longitudinal research, and and if, if you've heard me say that, you know, once you'll hear me say it a lot because longitudinal research is where we get to identify causality. It all came back. I brought, I brought it back to the causal question. We we can't identify causality from correlational research. And overwhelmingly, unfortunately, most research around porn and sex is correlational. The only way we can identify causality is through longitudinal research. It looks at people over time. And in Canada, they looked at people over time that identified as having a behavioral addiction. And I I am as skeptical of other behavioral addictions, shopping addiction and gambling addiction and, and gambling social media. Diagnosable. Yeah. Social media addiction, video game addiction. Um, but they, they, they looked at people that, that believed that they were addicted to behavioral addictions um, over time and found that um People who believed they were addicted to sex or porn um, were the least likely to still believe they were addicted to sex or porn a year later. 
and that most of them got better with no treatment. So the you know the the American Society of Addiction Medicine ASAM, um, they say that sex addiction is a progressive disease that will get worse and worse until you get treatment. And they say this specifically to scare people into seeking treatment. But the research actually shows that's not the truth. The research shows that, you know, people believing that they're addicted to sex or porn will get better without treatment on its own. And that better life adjustment is protective. What that means is that people who are struggling with porn or sex are struggling with other things in their life. And the porn or sex is is just kind of a symptom of what they're struggling with. And it may even just be a strategy that they're using to cope with it. I think it would make a lot more sense to view sex addiction or porn addiction as an adjustment disorder because people are trying to adjust to something in their life. They're they're dealing with negative emotions. They're dealing with a relationship problem. They're de- dealing with desire discrepancy in their relationship. They're dealing with conflict between their religious community or their religious values and the kind of sex that they want to have. Those are real serious issues. Those are all things that people deserve help with. They're maybe dealing with being lonely and not having the kind of relationship or sex that they wish that they could have. And they go to porn for coping. But like you said a moment ago, it's really easy in that situation to feel like the porn is the problem. Research is pretty clear. People who watch porn are more likely to have more sex. Um, A couple of years ago, there was, you know, um, this, this research that, kind of panicked everybody showing that adolescents and young people in their 20s and such are having less sex than ever before. And of course it triggered these chicken little kind of cries that, you know, humanity is going to die out and, and, and panics shit like that. Um, I get really angry when I, when I, when I hear that crap because it, it's never true. And it, it disregards again, you know, just how powerful our desire to mate is that um, if, if, if sexuality was so fragile that it could be broken so easily, we wouldn't be here as a species. We would have, we would have died out millennia ago. Um, but, but in that research, um, in response to that research, people were saying, oh, see, it's the porn, it's the porn. But it was really actually very clear in the research that the adolescents and young people who watch porn, they were the ones having sex. It was the ones who weren't watching porn. It was the ones who weren't watching porn that weren't having sex. And, and, you know, and the reality is we've been talking about this for a long time that um, there's a lot of things people can do now instead of sex. You know, couples can lay in bed and, and look at social media or watch TV rather than fuck. And it used to be that, you know, when the lights went out and the candle burned out, you know, there wasn't a lot to do besides sex. Now there's a lot of other options. Yeah, it's like 
I, I promised I was going to get to the sex with you tonight, honey, but I'm sorry. We got lost spending 30 minutes looking for something on Netflix and we never found right. anything to watch. <laughs> yes. Um, and so the people watching porn is an expression of their libido. Is It's an expression of their sexual desire. And people who have higher libidos and have higher sexual desire are more likely to have sex. <laughs> um, now, some men, many men, and, and, and increasingly women, use masturbation and watching porn to compensate for a decreased amount of sex um, to get them to the number of orgasms that they want to have. On an, on an average basis. Um, sometimes people use porn as a substitute for sex, but it's usually because the person that they can have sex with isn't the kind of person they want to have sex with or isn't the kind of sex they want to have. I've seen lots and lots of guys where the, the wife comes in and is like, well, he's you know, he's, he's watching porn instead of fucking me. And I want, I want him to have sex with me. And then I find out that, well, they have a really contentious relationship or he's a really anxious guy and she beats him up over it, that she makes fun of him for struggling with erections, that he gets, she gets mad at him if he can't satisfy her. Um, uh, if he if he ejaculates too quickly or she shames him for having sexual fantasies of, of cuckolding or kinkiness or transgender porn or, you know, whatever, she thinks that's disgusting. Well, she never questions. Maybe those things are the things that make him not want to fuck me. Maybe watching porn is easier because porn doesn't shame him unless he wants to be shamed. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. No, 100%. Um, and I think, I think uh, it's really unfortunate that it's almost intuitive. The first thing that a lot of people in that situation will reach for is, Oh my God, they aren't attracted to me when often that's, you know what I mean? Further from nothing can be further from the truth. Right. Like, and, and yeah, a lot of times just it's it like, I've talked before a few times about the, importance of making sure that kinks match and then if they don't coming to an agreement and tr at least trying i i am almost certain that the process of trying to compromise mm -hmm. means the world gestures make the world go round now gestures aren't enough all the time yeah. but you know the fact that somebody took the time to to care about me or somebody somebody else in their world and not just totally shut that world out it's yeah. not necessarily even just the activity itself now if in some cases that's true in some case there are some people who might not be able to get off as enjoyably or as fun uh or as easily without their specific types of sex and what they've learned how to the mechanisms they've learned to employ in order to reach orgasm um and i think i, I just published a piece yesterday on the orgasm gap and i think that is kind of women's part too what we're seeing the in overview a lot of the research that i've seen on the orgasm gap some of it does go away when you do you know manual clitoral stimulation but there's plenty of research out there that shows you that even when you do clitoral stimulation it's not just the, pen the penetration and lack of clitoral stimulation there's something deeper going on and 
2017 study, uh, not all, all orgasms were created equal, differences in frequency and satisfaction of uh, orgasm experiences, bisexual activity of same-sex versus mixed-sex relationships, a mouthful of a study title, mm -hmm. I know. Uh, I, you know, one of the big things that I took away from reading that study was that sexual scripts played a big role in, so people have this idea that if you are just doing penetrative sex, you know, women have this idea, if you're not, if you're just doing penetrative sex, that's somehow improper and that, that manual stimulation is not the way to go. And so you have this incongruence there again, that you know, that, oh my goodness, how, how can I do that? It's not manly or it's not, you know, male oriented, um, the manual stimulation, because that part of it doesn't please him. Now, fortunately, you can do both at the same time. Um, but yeah, I feel like there is something of an analogous nature between the two there, because you see a lot of women having these sexual frustrations as well. And of course, unfortunately, our really, really toxic discourse tends to just say, you need to blame the other sex. And it, it seems to go both ways. Women will be like, see, yeah. it's your porn watching. And men will, you know, see like, you know, see, it's it's this or that. It's it's your your desire for this kinds of stimulation that insults my manhood and my masculinity. And if we spend more time trying to just learn from each other and accept that people might be different. Yeah. You know, whatever the dynamic is, you know, whether it's, you know, LGBTQ plus <laughs> relationships, you know, it people are different it doesn't matter if it's two men it doesn't matter if it's two women um you know everybody has a very different conception of sex and the way that they re reach orgasm and find sex enjoyable and if we did more understanding i think things would be a whole lot better um mm -hmm. people, i will oh go ahead it, kind of two things one um uh men who have higher levels of self-compassion around their sexuality are less likely to identify as sex addicts. They're less likely to feel like their sexual desires are out of their control. Um, so one of the things that I, that I encourage folks dealing with these issues to, to, to do is to explore self-compassion, to challenge some of their rigid ideas around themselves, around their sexuality, around their sexual, you know, to, to have more flexible openness and acceptance that everything doesn't have to fit in a box. And then with couples, I talk about this really cool research by um, uh, a friend of mine named Rhonda Balzarini, and she publishes really neat research around people who are in relationships with a partner who does not meet their sexual ideal. And the, so that, you know, it, it might be you're in a relationship with somebody who, you know, doesn't, doesn't like the kind, same kind of sex you do, doesn't like oral sex as much as you do, doesn't, doesn't maybe like sex as much as you do, or maybe doesn't, doesn't fit the body type that you really think is ideal. That when you're in a relationship like that with mismatched ideals, it, 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 it predicts um, unhappy relationships, except when the person who doesn't meet your sexual desires or ideals is high in sexual communion. And that basically is, again, compassion. So, if Joe, if you and I were in a relationship and you didn't like performing oral sex on me as much as I wanted, but you were high in sexual communion, you would sometimes stretch 
you would sometimes be willing to, well, I'm not really into it right now, but I know how much you like it. So I'm going to, so that's okay. We're going to go there. Right. They, they accommodate, compromise, meet in the middle. And the more that you have that high sexual com- communion, it takes away the sting for me It that my relationship dissatisfaction goes down. And when we help a person like me who's in a relationship with Joe, who you know doesn't like oral sex as much as I do, but I remind myself of the times when you have done work to, to meet me in the middle, when you've shown that you care, like you were talking about just a minute ago, that takes away the unhappiness. So it, with all of these things, you know, as a, I mean, as a psychologist, as a therapist, none of this stuff is simple, flexible, accepting kind of approaches work best and help people feel more control and take away the pain, the pain and the suffering is caused by rigid, shame-based expectations. And the more we can help people develop more realistic, more human expectations, the healthier and happier people can be. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just, I'm going to add a couple of caveats here with a little bit of a personal story to mine. And I promise I won't keep you all day because I'm sure we could talk until the sunset and it's uh 4 PM now, 4 39 PM on my time. Um, New Mexico is beautiful, by the way. Albuquerque is one of my mm-hmm. favorite cities in the United States. Um, the weather can be sometimes prohibitive, especially for a person mm-hmm. like me who's Scottish on my mother and father's side, which means I burn fast. But um, anyways, yes, my um, my my caveat that I'm going to add here is it's funny what you're telling me right now goes against some of the popular media narratives that, um, oh, no, you shouldn't ever pressure your partner, which is true. You should never pressure your partner into doing sexual activities. But the, the flip side of that narrative is that you you should never cave to sexual activities that you're not super interested in or you're not in the mood for. And that sets up an anti uh stance between two partners and personally i kind of have that situation going on in my current relationship with my girlfriend right like she has some things that she enjoys that i'm not really super into right guess what it is ironically face fucking so the guy who (laughs) felt so terrible about you know she really likes that and um you know and i asked her it's okay if i talk about this kind of stuff she says go ahead so that's, you know, that's all good. But the thing is, you know, ironically, there's. And, and it's amazing that we didn't coordinate the conversation today. Not at all. Not. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. I thought about it the moment that moment you brought up that guy. And I was like, man, I got to mention this somehow. And so <laughs> I think. But I but, you know, how often do I do it? Every single time we have sex, you know, it's it's really not. I mean, it's not something I'm like totally phobic about. But at the same time, it's not my thing like if 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 i had like to to you know if i had the choice and could lay out all the things that i could do with a sexual partner it wouldn't even make the list and so to me that cost me nothing it costs me 
three and a half minutes of doing that particular activity before changing to another activity. And I think that it's interesting. I wrote this piece. What, uh, 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 science has discovered a fascinating link between anal sex and the orgasm gap. And <laughs> there is a, a link there. And it's not about anything mechanical that helps women overcome an orgasm gap by doing anal sex. It's not like, you know, the anus is this holy grail of women's orgasms. What it is, is that people who engaged in anal sex also engaged in a series of other sexual activities before they reached anal sex, because very few people in this world just go into the butthole and that's it. And that's the end of the story. Um, so there's usually five, six, seven different sexual activities that are engaged yeah. in per session, which means everybody gets something they enjoy. There's a lot of sexual, um, you know, community as as you're saying a lot of um you know empathy there in those particular partners and, and when that happens the sorry. the orgasm rates of women are the same as men they're right. identical and yep. so yeah and they're more likely to be communicating um and negotiating around that behavior um the uh and and you know and and we all know good anal sex you know takes practice and lube and 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 self-control and and relaxing and trust interestingly the same um uh, research finding has um uh, popped up with porn that couples who watch porn together are more likely for the woman to experience an orgasm during the sex and it's, you know, is the porn increasing her orgasm? Maybe a little bit. It does increase arousal, but it also it's also reflective of the couple that they're a couple who is willing to have anal sex. They're a couple who is willing to watch porn together, meaning they're more likely to be a couple that is going to elevate female sexual you know pleasure and orgasm and do what needs to be done to get there. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, it, 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 but, but I love you bring that up because again, it's, it's not simple. It's all contextual. It all goes together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, just one last question and then, um, I, you have the floor to, um, promote any books or research or anything you'd like to talk about. Um, the last question is for people out there who are struggling in their relationships, they feel like they're struggling with sex addiction. They feel like they're struggling with, um, you know, incongruence with a partner. What do you tell them? What what advice do you give them? Um, and and especially for the person out there, I, I recently encountered one of the most brilliant science writers that I know came to me the other day and told me I'm going through porn withdrawals. And that was a very difficult conversation to navigate, especially because he's seen my interview with Dr. Prousey. And so it's, you know, you don't want to tell somebody that they're completely just hallucinating something. So, you know, I, I empathized and, and, and basically said, you know, I think that maybe you have some other issues that intermittently crop up in your life and it's easy to just link that with one of the things that also frequently crops up in your life what do you yeah what what, what do you tell those different people and and how do you how do you help them um you know first i i as i said a moment ago i i say you know we need to approach this from a place of self-compassion um we need to try to take down some of the emotional valence here, take down some of the fear, some of the belief that the world is going to end. Um, we, need, we, need, we need to turn down the volume on some of these things so that we can start dealing with, with the issues. We need to look at what are the things we're not talking about. We need to look at, both within ourselves and within our relationship. We need to look at 
our sexual attitudes and our values. Um, and we have to question, do we think they're still right? My idea that, you know, me watching porn makes me a bad person. How, how sure am I of the validity of that? And where did I get that? Where did I get that idea? And am I sure that the people who gave me that idea were right? Um, or were they trying to control me? Um, rather than, you know, with, with that scientist, I, I, I would be asking him questions like, you know, what if we take, take the, take the language around addiction or disease kind of off the table for a minute. And instead we say, this is a learned behavior. Like any other learned behavior, the more we do it, the more learned it becomes to change and, and the easier it becomes to engage in that behavior. So to change the behavior, we have to learn new strategies. Rather than trying to stop these problem behaviors, I encourage us to try to learn new behaviors. Rather than trying to prevent us from engaging in these behaviors, let us try to fill the gap with replacement behaviors and focus on those replacement behaviors and have compassion with ourselves when we maybe engage in that problem behavior. I, I, um, uh, with, with men that I treat, they're trying to watch porn less. I don't tell them don't watch porn. Instead, I ask them, what are the things that you would be doing if you weren't watching porn? And then I reinforce those rather than, because we as humans are better at starting new behaviors than stopping other behaviors. Um, I explore good cognitive behavioral therapy, things like delaying and thought switching, harm reduction strategies. Um, all of these are good science. Um, and unfortunately, the porn addiction treatment model, there's no research that it works. No, no, in fact, after 40 years of sex addiction treatment existing, there's no research that it indicates that it works. It's frightening that there's so much of it out there and there's no evidence that it's effective. I think that the more we can help people with these issues is through podcasts like yours, helping them to realize that sex is something that we can talk about, that we don't have to be afraid of, that we don't have to be so ashamed of. The more we can end the catastrophic thinking, um, the less panicked people have to be. I, I honestly, I think that you know what's wild right now in, in in the world as as we're watching all of these sexual wars erupt is that most people really don't share most of those ideas. But what has happened is that the people who really have these ideas of porn being you know, uh, demonic or destructive of, you know, gay marriage being awful and, and uh, you know, abortion being awful and all, all, of, all of these things. The people that hold those beliefs really deeply have gotten louder. Um, and they've been given megaphones. 
Um, and the algorithms just spit those things out like, oh, exactly. yeah, like you wouldn't believe. I understand. Um, well, again, I won't keep you uh, all day. Um, Dr. David Lay, um, I will put your website right there in the uh, cool. in the thank description. You. And um, thank you so much for coming on The Science of Sex. You have yourself a wonderful day. Thank you.